Marianne Franklin, uh, hello. And hello. Thanks very much for agreeing to talk to Counterpoint today. Um, Marianne is reader and convener of the Transnational Communications and Global Media Program at Goldsmiths University. In uh, the book you published on the, the, uh, the diaspora, uh, you, you uh, stated this is a tale of two internets, mm. the first being computer-mediated hope finance, and, and, and the other more a story about non-commercial and interpersonal communication. So today, even more, they, I think those two contest contest each other. Do you think there is a, a, a dangerous contest of the, of the social and the more commercial side mm. as we stand? Um, yes and no. I think first of all I put that rather dichotomously at the time in order to make a point mm. because those tensions were only just starting to be felt at the time and many argue now that the commercial security applications of these technologies were, were actually intrinsic to the internet by definition. So I put those as sort of two competing ideas because they implied two, at least two paths if you could investigate it. So I think the danger for me at the moment, danger in social terms and closing down and danger to diversity and understandings of community is in fact is the commercial and I would say it's partnership with security interests namely from the point of view of states if they start to overwhelm the social and cultural side of it. But the point is, every day these two things are always going on, at least. It's much more complicated than two divergent paths. But in terms of our discourses, let's put it this way, our sort of sound bites and our political statements, politician statements, academic statements, it's as if they're two separate worlds. Mm. But the reference was to a tale of two cities. Yeah. And in a sense, the idea is it's not two separate entities, it's one with multiple faces, mm. which are in themselves not necessarily happily cohabiting. <laughs> so I think that tension is, is one we have to keep alive, because mm. the danger would be to turn it into one monolithic. Either reduce it to socio-cultural, so everything becomes a cultural argument, mm. and in a post-9-11 context, I find that particularly worrying, yeah. for various reasons we can come back to, or you turn to this purely techno-economic instrument by which um, comparative advantage will be furthered, or state control will be enhanced, and so on and so forth. Mm. Um, so in a sense there's a danger intellectually, but there's also a very clear political and uh, social danger mm. to resist complexity really, even though it's mm. easy to talk in two clear terms, either or one or the other. Yeah, yeah. but in fact we're talking about um, negotiations. Always. 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 Yeah. Yeah. Uh, <coughs> in terms of state action and uh, this, this sphere, um, y y your um, area is, is around transnationalism mm -hmm. and I was just wondering really how, how you would define transnationalism, w whether it, it implies post-national post forms or really if it's to do with highly networked interactions. It's both. Yeah. The thing about transnationalism is that I certainly don't see it, and many who try and define this term don't see it as a transcending of the nation state. That would be silly. Mm. I mean, that's like saying um, the sun doesn't rise every morning. However, trans means across, mm. but it doesn't mean it doesn't mean in terms of denying. So you could argue in many ways that it's a synonym for global, but I don't think it's that either. Something about transnationalism means in spite of, underneath, and alongside classic understandings of the nation state. Mm. 
national identity and nationalism as a political movement in one way or the other. Now, anthropologists take nat transnationalism, meaning that cultures and societies always cross borders, have done for millennia. So the idea of transnational is very deeply embedded in, in anthropological theory and research. Mm. It's become a buzzword for political uh, debates and also in terms of media and communications. Media and communications because of the internet. Um, politics or international studies because of the uh, new world order that was heralded in the 90s and again with information technology. So transnationalism has has many meanings depending on which discipline you're in and what your aims and objectives are to posit transnationalism or transnational studies as opposed to international or as opposed to national. So I think those tensions once again are always in there. But I don't see trans as transcending. That's to me, when you talk about global, yeah. there's something about the word global that sort of is about a transcendent moment. I think that thing that exists. Yeah. Well, I think um, that's perhaps very blue sky. You know, the global view of the satellite rotating the Earth, I think, is one of the most powerful metaphors. Mm. You know, our view of planet Earth since that beautiful first shot from the lunar module. You know, or the first satellites rather. That's that sort of Western civilization's first visualization of the globe that was a visualization rather than an imagined leap. The Greeks have been thinking the globe before us. But mm. This idea about cloud culture that's coming out and the issue about sort of um, global cultures, the big, the big critique there often is that this is sort of a pie in the sky thinking and this is, uh, but this is a very, very uh, long-standing ideal form of idealistic thinking. That, mm. you know, the idea of a commons is not just related to creative commons or peer-to-peer. -peer. This goes back centuries. And I know particularly in England this is a very strong um, sensibility about commons, about open spaces. There's always been a struggle to have open spaces. See, there are parts of the world where public spaces are actually just taken as red. Yeah. They're not actually needs to be fought for. They're actually part of what you pay your taxes for. Uh, parks are open all night. Mm. Um, and I was, I was thinking years ago about thinking about uh, cyberspace as a sort of space people go literally and figuratively. Could we not start thinking about it as a traditional idea of commons, like the commons, or um, a national park? The national parks were created particularly in places like New Zealand or parts of America to, to protect and conserve and to, and to create spaces that were not actually going to be... Um, appropriated by commercial or agricultural or state interests and it's a sort of social contract between the taxpayer, the citizen if you like, and the governing structures to maintain that. We've never used that metaphor enough when it comes to cyberspace. Yeah. Uh, and with the return of the state, the idea that now states like China or America are now going to tell us how the internet's going to work and not even do it legally, just get on with it every day to, to, to enclose what we do or to track what we do. I think it's even more important nowadays. Whilst we think about cloud computing in the way the Ledbetter book does, you also think, what about a national park or a park, a common park? And that has rules and regulations. Mm. It's not like anything goes. You can't just litter a park as you wish. Yeah. Well, it gets cleaned up after you, but there's certain things you can or can't do. And I think, for me, that's a, that's a metaphor or a model I'd like to think about a little bit more. I was thinking about it when I was doing work with homeless newspapers and the internet, about the fact you know, the internet's assumed to be a, a public, well, not necessarily a public good, 
but it's assumed that everyone will have access to the internet equally. And in fact, that's a very, very concrete material issue about who has access and where. And the national parks are based on universal access for everyone. Yeah. Well, I got that completely wrong. Am I just dreaming? But I think I shouldn't even think of the society space as a as a national park. Yeah, and 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 access is is clearly is, is, is just one of the front issues for actually thinking about how the space can be useful, um, and it needs to be expanded. I think um, going back to the, the idea of the kind of global commons and and the lead beater. It's um, as you say, it is, I it is idealistic, but 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 uh, the cloud culture e equation, mm. as as he states, it, is is also very pragmatic, and that is that um, if if there is more cultural heritage and, and culture available to more people via this stuff, then um, it's it's the kind of minute in interactions which are, which are going to create the spaces and, and, and build the commons in the end. Well, let's say make it viable, make them viable, because you can mm. have badly run national parks, you can have spaces yeah. that are public spaces that are, that are sad, that are underkempt, that are unkempt, yeah. um, that people destroy. So it's always a, it's always a, a negotiation between you know, um, the inhabitants or the participants or the practitioners of that space. Um, but to assume, as I've seen recently, very recently, this idea, and this is this has been spearheaded by the whole issue about surveillance, censorship, security, mm. and the fact that China has taken a very clear, old school approach. The internet is ours to do with as we wish, uh, which in fact they've called the bluff of the U.S. administrations, who have been doing the same thing all along. Um, but the idea is the discourse now at the moment, or the, the the rhetoric at the moment, is very much either the state decides what's going to happen. Mm. in international terms, which is why transnational is a much more powerful term, or we leave it up to uh, private private sector. Well, we all know the private sector has pretty much bankrupted itself morally, so now the state's all rushing around to rally and tell us, no, they are the guardians of uh, the national parks, when in fact, as we know, they're also part of the problem. So how you run a national park or a public space does differ from, from country to country or from region to region. There isn't one model that size that fits all, but the national park model is a very powerful one, I think. Mm. And all the ones I've enjoyed all over the world um, are there for the enjoyment of all. And I think there's a sh we have to have a shift in our thinking. Otherwise, we're going to be led by the nose, by the latest high-tech discovery. And cloud computing isn't just a concept; it's actually a strategic technological push at the moment. The fact that um, Google has been so successful is based on this sort of cloud idea. But some pretty clever minds being put to work to create this as a sort of market-based imperative. At the same time, again, uh, students. I was running a research seminar the other month, and a student. I said, "Back up, back up your work." And apparently, I I aged myself instantly by talking about you know, backing it up on disks or USB that I uh, went to hand. Oh, I can just put it on the cloud. Yes, you can, I said. Yeah. However, what if you want to access that cloud in four or five years? It's sort of taken for granted this. There's, there's not enough understanding that um, some of the stuff we're talking about is actually um, being pushed by certain um, commercial and uh, state interests. The CD-ROM thing, the DVD fight, you know, the, the, the standards for our VCRs, 
Yeah. Uh, the whole issue about CD versus vinyl. Um, we need to certainly as um, uh, high education uh, educators, we need to be getting students to say yes. That's a great way you can access your archive wherever you are, but that archive might disappear. Mm. And what do you do if that goes? Um, yeah, and the commercial interest isn't is, is not only just in the storage of information, but of course is completely in our in our social spaces online. Everyone, that's my biggest concern. I think you've mentioned in a couple of your questions mm. because it was a concern I had when I when I did the two thousand and four book about the two internets. The tale of two internets isn't just a uh, um, a material commercial reality; it's also in our heads. Mm. And I've noticed students become much more sensitised to the fact that the price they pay to do get everything free is that they're being relentlessly tracked. Now there's some really exciting um, stuff being written about this being not again not an either or. It is actually changing the way people see themselves in the world, and perhaps that's a, a trade-off you make when you go into the tube every day. You know, all these screens and, and and advertising images everywhere. Does that change who you are as a person? Does that change how you see the? Yes, I think it does. There's a mm. lot of 30, 40 year old work about the power of advertising images, television advertising, magazine advertising, advertising standards authorities. They've all sprung up because we know there are certain effects over time. Hard to measure, hard to maintain causal relationships, but there is a relationship. So why should that be any different um, online? It's just that they're not banners anymore. They don't scream on the, on the screen. They don't pop up in your face. They're much more subtle. And I think that actual Faustian pact is something I think as idea people we need to think about a bit more. It's it's a way the train has left the station. Mm. The train has left the station long, long ago. Um, everything you do online has been is now being increasingly tracked, but at the same time, being increasingly diverted, subverted, derailed. All along the way, you know, certain commu communities like musicians find ways to to get around sort of copyright uh, grey areas. Put it that way. Otherwise, there wouldn't have been a fuss about Napster, would there? There wouldn't have been a fuss about peer-to-peer -peer sharing. The same technology allows you to divert and... Um, um, what's the word? Yeah, divert. Yeah. So it's not just all big companies in the state, actors like China or um, the UK government. That, you know, they, they call the shots. Um, I think... A lot, a lot of people who actually, and this isn't about hackers or terrorists. We're talking about every day, every day. You, I, you and me, and my students are constantly making decisions about what we say, what we disclose, what we say, what we trust to our servers, what we trust to the quote-unquote cloud. Mm. Um, all the time, and I, I'm just trying to think about ways to make that a more conscious decision rather than an unconscious one. So we seem to be. Um, trying to move towards a natural space, but uh, denaturalizing the process along the way. So let's demystifying some of the yeah 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 the sort of yes that just because it's uh, the web doesn't mean that it's it, that that somehow it didn't come from nowhere it didn't fall out of the sky yeah you know it didn't come ready made off ready made off the shelf a lot of it does now come ready made off the shelf but those codes of course are in themselves design decisions so it's a tale of uh, perhaps thousands of internets. 
rather than one. Absolutely, and hopefully a good few parks as well. And a few parks in there somewhere yeah. along the line. It would be nice to be able to enter cyberspace uh, without worrying about um, being tracked or surveyed, and without CCTVs in, in metropolitan terms. Yeah. Enter at your own risk. <laughs>